Hey, all you cool cats and kittens. Before we start today's episode, I wanted to let you know two things. First, while I was recording with our special guest, I had a technical snafu, and unfortunately, my high-quality audio was lost. So, if I sound like I'm coming to you from the inside of a tiger's stomach, it's not you, it's me. Second, we do discuss some adult themes during this podcast in relation to the documentary series Tiger King. While we don't use strong language, there are adult issues discussed, so take precautions if you so choose. Enjoy the show. This is episode 88 of The Popcast. Welcome to The Popcast, a weekly podcast all about pop culture in three regular segments. We're your hosts, Maureen and Josh Goldman. All right. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome back to another episode of the Popcast. Today, I am not joined by Maureen. I am joined by two special guests on the line. Today, we are talking about the Netflix series Tiger King. So I'm having two guests join me. First up, my good friend, Peter LeCleed. Peter, how are you? I'm doing well, Josh. It's uh, it's good to be back with you. It's It's been a while. I don't think we've talked since the Nationals won the World Series. That's right. I'm also joined by my co-host on Breaking Pod, the founder of the Vernacular Podcast Network, co-host of Vernacular, Creedal Catholic, Breaking Pod, the man does it all. Zach Crippen, Zach, how are you? I'm doing well. I always appreciate the introductions from you, Josh. I just, I'm, I'm like ready to be like Kool-Aid man and just run through a wall after you introduce me every time. Let's do this. Yeah, you know what? Sometimes I write the introductions down, but that wasn't that one's from the heart. Just totally spontaneous, impromptu. Wow. You're a poet. You're a poet, good man. Well, last week on the podcast, Maureen and I talked about things we were doing during this sort of weird time in our lives where people are stuck inside. And so I wanted to ask each of you, Peter, we'll start with you. What is what is one thing that is making you happy in in all of this? So so we're stuck inside. But, but are you doing anything? Is anything particularly making you happy during this time? So uh, I'll, I'll give you two things. I'll give you two things because I think you both can relate to this. All three of us have young kids, all pretty similar in age. So we're all fighting the, how do I keep working from home while homeschooling? Um, I have a kindergartner and a three and a half year old. And so we've actually spent a lot of time uh, talking about American history and Virginia history, which uh, obviously both you guys uh being in and around the, the D.C. area for so much of your formative years, understand that there's a lot of good YouTube videos and a lot of fun things you can look up that are age appropriate for a five and a half year old, uh, for a six year old. We, we look at a lot of these YouTube videos. That's been a lot of fun to explain that stuff to, to my daughter, Avery. And then you guys know how my dog and I like to do long walks and listen to a lot of podcasts. So we're doing walks at 10 o'clock at night to kind of clear the head after everyone else goes to bed. And, um, amidst all the craziness it's still nice to walk out there and and turn on a podcast and just just kind of cruise around when it's not 100 degrees here in vegas so we're we're keeping our sanity but it's it's getting dicey my friends it's getting dicey (laughs) yeah so we're in late april peter and you 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 told me that vegas is looking vegas where you live is looking like it's going to hit 100 degrees this week that is crazy to me yeah yeah we're going to hit 102 degrees this week which it's it's actually a little early um for, for it to be hitting 100 but it's it's getting spicy out here, my friends. It's getting spicy. All right, Zach, let me throw it to you. You are in Colorado, so hopefully not nearly close to 100 degrees, but what is one thing that is making you happy during this time? Great question, Josh. Uh, first, I was going to ask if I can ask a question of Pete. Pete, I'm wondering if, you were, if you've been on the Strip since they've shut down there. Is it like eerie and quiet like a ghost town? Because I've heard all the hotels are shut down. Obviously, casinos are, are you know, people can't gamble there now. So is it a total ghost town? 
It, it absolutely is. So the, the joke here around Vegas, I haven't personally been down there, but all the local news continue to broadcast and show you the, the early morning camera views. Um, and there, there's actually a surprising amount of wildlife here in Southern Nevada because we're the, the hub for all the water within about four hours of us. Um, and there's a lot of animals walking the strip. Um, Boulder City, where the Hoover Dam is about 30 minutes from here, is having bighorn sheep walking through people's front yards. Wait, so when you say animals walking the strip, what kind of animals are we talking about? On the strip itself, I think it's a lot of uh, not big cats, which we'll talk about here in a few, but it's a lot of animals who look like they've eaten very well, who used to be similar to dogs, cats, and rats, who now have a very formidable <laughs> presence walking Jackals. the strip. Um, there's actually a lot of horseback riding in and around Vegas, and there's a lot of people um, who are riding their horses down the sidewalks of the strip right now because, yeah, there's there's no traffic whatsoever. Every single thing on the strip is closed right now. It's, it's pretty appropriate for a Western city to revert to a place where people are riding their horses through the streets. Yeah, the, the mob is about to be back and. It's, it's going to get real aggressive here. It's going to be great. Have you guys seen those memes that say Earth is healing, we are the virus? Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> so that's what that's reminding me of, because I think that was start. I don't know when it started. I mean, who knows when a meme originates, right? It's, it's always murky to find out. Uh, but I, I think one of the things that, that sort of launched this was the presence of dolphins in, in or around Venice because there's no boat traffic. And so dolphins are turning, the water's getting clearer, et cetera. And so I was... Uh, I was <laughs> Earlier today, just looking at some of these hilarious memes, there are some sites that have compiled, you know, the 30 best Earth is healing, we are the virus memes. And people are photoshopping like ridiculous animals in places those animals would never be and saying like, oh, the uh, the orcas are back in the swimming pool. Earth is healing. We are the virus. I saw one where there was a pair of Timbaland shoes and it said uh, they were like in nature and it's like the Timbalands have returned to nature. You know, (laughs) the Earth is healing. We are the virus. I thought that one was pretty good. Oh, it's such a good, such a good meme. Um, Okay, but sorry for derailing that question, Josh. What am I doing that I'm enjoying in the time of coronavirus? So uh, as you guys uh, know, we just recently came through Lent and hit Easter and uh, I'm a a big fan of chocolate and I gave up sweets for Lent. So when Easter hit, I was all about the chocolate. Uh, my birthday was the week after Easter, and uh, I got some chocolate for my birthday. So we had a giant bag of M&Ms, some of which we used to stuff the kids' Easter eggs, the rest of which we used to feed my uh, chocoholism. And then I got this big thing from Costco for my birthday from the kids, you know, from Sally slash the kids. And uh, it was like these dark chocolate, car- dark chocolate sea salt caramels. Amazing. Um, so that was, you know, a week ago, uh, a little over a week ago, they're gone now, the M&Ms and the caramels. <laughs> so that's one thing I've been enjoying in quarantine. Another PSA for listeners though, uh, this, this is a pro tip Peloton just until the 30th, you guys might be interested too, is doing a free 90 day trial. Uh, no, uh, no charge to your credit card until after the 90 days. They're doing this because of people who are stuck in lockdowns. And highly recommend, you don't need a Peloton bike or treadmill. You can have, uh, you know, any, any treadmill or bike to do the classes. But they also have a lot of body, well, body weight classes and strength training and stuff like that. So pretty worthwhile. It's a free app, very high quality. I just, just did it today, just downloaded it today and tried the first class today. And it was pretty good. So I'm enjoying that as well. Do you have to do that in front of the nicest window in your house overlooking? Is that a requirement when you download? Are they checking via GPS? So um, I don't think it's exactly like that. I think you have to prove that you have a very swanky place gotcha. and, <laughs> and a beautiful physique to turn your, your camera on. Otherwise, they don't let you do that. 
Only beautiful people. <laughs> Otherwise, you have to be in blackness. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> well, thank you guys for sharing things that are making you happy. I hope our listeners are finding at least something that is keeping them going during this weird quarantine self-isolation period. But today, hopefully, we're going to bring you something interesting to listen to. We are going to be talking about Tiger King, the Netflix documentary miniseries about the life of zookeeper Joe Exotic. I didn't actually realize this, but the full title of the of the program is Tiger King Murder Mayhem and Madness which makes sense if you've seen if you've seen the 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 documentary series i think it's 7 episodes they released a a an eighth one which probably doesn't need to be talked about at all on this podcast it's sort of like a recap that was hosted by Joel McHale where he went back and talked to the people featured in the documentary series after it had been released to sort of see how their how their lives had changed I think it was more of a marketing ploy to get more people to watch something. I've not seen that bonus episode. Uh, and the reason I haven't is because as soon as I saw that it was hosted by Joel McHale, I was like, this is going to be totally worthless. <laughs> I mean, I like Joel McHale, but not for that. <laughs> and by the way, Joel McHale and Ryan Seacrest, in my mind, are the same person. So Very similar in look. And, and uh, yeah, I can totally see how you might mix them up. I will say that I watched maybe the first 10 minutes of it and I turned it off. I know, Peter, I think you watched the whole thing. Uh, Ugh, yeah. Mistake. <laughs> Yeah, there you go. But but the but the actual miniseries, the seven episodes, very engaging, very interesting. And we're going to talk about that today. It was released on March 20th, which was kind of right about the time that everybody was sort of going into this lockdown state where you were sort of inside. And and so the first weekend that it came out, it was this huge, huge thing. I mean, it was talked about on social media forever and ever. And, you know, I saw it everywhere before I finally finally tuned in. And it looks like, according to the Nielsen ratings from whatever data Netflix releases, that it was w watched by 34.3 million people over its first 10 days of release, which makes it one of Netflix's most popular releases to date. So the first thing I want to ask you guys, and I'll throw this to you first, Peter, just sort of your overall impression of the show. So I I, I don't want to go too much into sort of like delving into the details of the show. I assume most people that are listening to this are are familiar with it, but I'll just give a, a quick rundown of what it is. It follows the life of Joe Exotic, who's this animal big cat owner and uh, zookeeper, I guess, for lack of a better term, in in, uh, you know, middle America and follows him his sort of crazy antics to run his his zoo and then follows a bunch of other people who sort of intersect in his life, including uh, someone who runs a sanctuary for big cats in Florida. Her name is Carol Baskin, another uh, big cat owner in South Carolina, and then some other, you know, questionable people throughout. So, Peter, what was your overall impression of of the of the documentary series? That is that is a surprisingly difficult question. And I'll, I'll just say it's difficult because of this. The first two to three episodes are really engaging and not just because they're a train wreck, which they are. Um, as you get to know these people and you, you learn just how rotten some people are and what other people will do to each other. Um, but it was really, really interesting to just learn about these people and see the lengths that they will go to, the ridiculousness, which way they the way that they live their lives. But as the show goes on, it, it gets painful 
where a lot of these shows, regardless of how bad someone is, the character draws you in and you're just interested to see what happens to that character. What I found with Tiger King was almost the exact opposite, that I was relieved when the show was over because the characters got to be so horrific, so over the top. Um, I thought they were clearly playing it up for the cameras, and I thought that they got worse and worse as the series went on, both morally as well as um, the way that they were being portrayed by the guys who made the documentary, um, that by the end of it, honestly, I was kind of relieved it was over because I, I just disliked every single character so much uh, that, that I, was, I was glad to be done with it. It was a really, really interesting watch, but by the end, I was very glad it was over. Zach, what are your impressions of, of, the, of the series? Yeah, I agree with Pete that that's a very difficult question to answer. Um, it's, it's, it's hard to evaluate for a number of reasons, some of which I think we'll get into. But the one I'll just mention here is that it's real people. So these are real lives, real livelihoods that are being affected, real problems that are surfacing, real interactions and relationships or destroyed relationships. So that's, that's really difficult. I will also say that the show itself, I, I don't think it's, it's poorly produced or bad quality by any means, but it's not the highest quality documentary that I've ever seen. Uh, I think there's a lot to attract people. There's a lot to sort of titillate and entice as far as you know, amping up the drama involved. I think some of the storylines were exaggerated a little bit to maximize a viewing audience. And I also think the show really, really, really benefited from just being released at the exact right moment. I mean, I cannot think of a more a moment more culturally ripe, I think, for exploitation by something like Tiger King, where we're all locked down in our houses looking for something that's just totally off the wall, unlike anything we've ever seen before, et cetera. And it just it was able to capitalize on that. And right at the moment where nobody had any sports to talk about, for example, they could now talk about Tiger King. Uh, you know, I was listening to the Bill Simmons podcast with, around, around the time this came out, and uh, Bill Simmons has no idea what to do with himself, uh, given that there's no sports to talk about. So he's talking about, you know, the you know, 19, Bulls teams from the 1980s and things like that, but also Tiger King. You know, so this, is, this touched all sectors of society, and people are really, really into it for that reason. Um, I think that the show is interesting. I just find my, found myself conflicted as I watched it uh, for various reasons that I think we can get into. Yeah, I will say the interesting thing about the show, you know, just as, from a big picture perspective is when I was watching it, I, I was I was shocked by the amount that it kept escalating in terms of of like what was going on. So the first episode seems crazy. You get into the second, third, fourth, fifth, sixth, seventh episode. And I just found myself thinking, like, how can this possibly be real? How can people possibly be doing these things and acting this way? And I think that was what I found most interesting about the show is that it was a portrait of a group of people that I didn't think could possibly exist. And that in their minds, the subjects of the documentary, Joe Exotic and Carol Baskin and and Jeff Lowe and these these people who are doing things that are just seem crazy and off the wall, like they don't seem to bat an eye like it's just their normal life and and so i thought i was fascinated by sort of this idea that there are aspects and places in our country that where this is not necessarily the norm but it just seems more acceptable for whatever reason like the the idea that what joe exotic was doing let's just take the the idea that he was running a zoo with these big cats and these animals that probably shouldn't be 
in cages, at least not in the conditions that he, you know, uh, was providing them. And he was getting celebrities to come and visit, you know, before all of this came. I think Shaquille O'Neal visited one of these major places. And, and it's just sort of like one of those things where everybody was just like paying money to go and see these things. And, you know, before all of this was, I, I don't know what the popularity of these places are now that the documentary has been released, but before this was released, I know someone who met one of the people featured in the documentary. Uh, that would be the uh, very kind of creepy um, Bhagavan Antle, uh, Doc Antle. He, he runs the place in South Carolina. And there was a point in the documentary series where it said, oh, he went to lobby on Capitol Hill. And I had a friend who worked on Capitol Hill and I was like, I'm pretty sure she sent me a picture one time of her holding a baby tiger. So I went back and looked and sure enough, she was holding a baby white tiger and Doc Antle was standing weirdly next to her glaring at the camera. And it's like at the time when I saw that, I was like, oh, my gosh, you met a baby tiger. That's so interesting. That's so cool. I had no idea, you know, the, of the backstory of all of this. And so to me, what was fascinating about the documentary is it sort of worked to denormalize this idea that this is actually okay from a from a big picture perspective of how we treat animals now there's a lot more that goes on in the documentary and i want to touch on that in just a couple minutes but before we get into that because this is a documentary series that features larger than life characters zach was there a character that that you found drawn to that you thought i can get behind this this person or you you felt you felt more empathy towards them than perhaps another character. Yeah, I think I think there are a few. Uh, I think I would actually say almost every single one of the employees at Joe Exotic's Zoo. He he was quite conscious about building this collection of pariahs or outcasts who didn't have friends or had been re rejected by family, couldn't hold down a job, etc. And they all managed to be, you know, fairly friendly with each other, and they built kind of their own community that had some semblance of family there. And that was emotionally moving for me. And it was doubly so when I realized that I think these people were really kind of being taken advantage of. I mean, they showed some of the living accommodations and their trailers were disgusting. You know, no air conditioning or heating. They're eating uh, expired meat as one of their main protein sources. You know, the same stuff that the tigers would eat. Uh, obviously not paid well. They're not getting paid a, a fair, just wage for what they do. But most of those people were there because, you know, I think there were several ex-convicts who had, who had served time in prison. There were others who had just been rejected by their family and friends previously, and they were there, at least most of them, because they felt some sort of bond with the tigers, and I thought that was uh, emotionally resonant with me. And I also thought it was interesting that these people who were, I mean, I don't think they would describe themselves as in captivity in the same way the tigers were, but to a degree, they, I think, were, right? I mean, they were sort of driven by personal circumstances to go work at the zoo where they could make at least something maybe a, a, approaching a living wage. Uh, with other friends, but you know, and they might have been free to go technically, but where would they go? I mean, uh, you know, one example is um, uh, who's the 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 youngest of Joe Exotic's husbands? What was his name? The one who committed suicide, sadly. Uh, forget his name, but he was young, and he was. I mean, some people were speculating he was almost imprisoned there just by the fact that Joe Exotic would buy him the weed that he wanted, right? And I think that was a, a relatively common story. It wasn't drugs for everyone, but it was, it was something. It was companionship, camaraderie, uh, a little bit of money, food, a place to live, things like that, that kept all those people there. 
and they were able to build this small community um, despite you know having this uh, very bizarre and certainly mentally afflicted leader. Yeah, that was uh, Travis Maldonado. Was was that Travis? Was that guy. Yeah. Thank you. Yeah, I will say one of the interesting things about the show that I think is is a really good sign that they're doing something right in the production is that at different times during watching this, I felt empathy towards every character and it didn't always last a long time, but there were moments where despite how absolutely insane Joe exotic is as a person, there were moments where, you know, I felt some empathy towards him, whether it was based on his past experiences that sort of formed him into the person that he was or, or whatever the case may be. I think with everybody, maybe with the exception of one or two characters that they featured, I sort of felt something for each person, which I think is a really good thing when it comes to a documentary because it shows that they're portraying at least its subjects in a in as well-rounded of a way as possible. So, Peter, did you have a, a character or person that you sort of were drawn to? Uh, yeah, I'm, I'm glad you said drawn to and not liked. One of the most interesting characters I thought um, going through was actually Rick Kirkham, who, for anyone who's seen the documentary, he's the guy in the cowboy hat with the deep voice, um, who who's really, really heavy early on in the show. And then at one point talks about how he walked off the set because he was the one who originally produced Joe Exotic's crazy TV show. And he had finally had it and walked off. And he actually did another podcast where he also talked about his adventures with Joe Exotic. And listening to him talk and listening to him go from, I'm just trying to get into this. Uh, I see an opportunity for a cool show. This guy's nuts, but this is great TV. To the transition of his unwillingness to continue going on with the shenanigans that Joe Exotic was leading when everyone else seemed to be playing into Joe Exotic. Um, I liked that Rick Kirkham seemed to be one of the first ones outside of his core employees who you already brought up, Zach, um, who really started to see an issue with this. And it was more than just great TV, but something was was terribly wrong at this place and he wasn't going to deal with it anymore. Unfortunately, at the end of the show and then in the bonus episode, Joel McHale, I thought he came across as a a real jerk, to be honest. Um, And it was clear that the spotlight had gotten to him and he was really enjoying um, how much publicity he was getting for his other projects based off this. But the seven core episodes, I thought were really interesting to watch his progression and that he was one of the few people who could walk away and say, "I'm, I'm not doing this anymore. I'm not putting up with this anymore. We need to stop. Unfortunately, no one else seemed to really get on board stopping, but I, I thought Rick Kirkham was really, really interesting for that reason. Yeah, the, the one character that I want to point out that we haven't talked about uh, just briefly is in episode two, this one is the one that focuses on Doc Antle, the guy who runs the exotic zoo in South Carolina. And, and basically what the the sort of what they come to is that he's essentially running a cult with young women and he's sort of manipulating them into coming. And one of the people that they feature is someone who essentially escaped the cult. Her name was Barbara Fisher and she's interviewed from her home, very modest home. And, and she seems relatively normal compared to everybody else in everybody else that they would feature in this. But I thought it was really interesting. And I always find it fascinating when people choose to speak out you know, against someone who's done something that is potentially negative or, you know, at worst harmful to other people, you know, I, I would always feel uncomfortable doing something like that for fear of retribution or, you know, retaliation. But I thought she was very articulate in the way that she described sort of the conditions that she was put through in this zoo that was, you know, essentially a cult that she was stuck in and that I thought it was fascinating that she was able to sort of escape from that. and. 
I, I was happy that they were able to feature someone like that. I, I would hope that there were more people who have been able to get out of that. And of course, the character of Doc Antle has said, look, this is there's no truth to this. Of course, he's going to deny that because he still wants people to come in and, you know, pay for his services at the zoo. But I, I really enjoyed her. And she did seem like one of the only truly normal people that that was featured in this at all, with the exception of maybe the the federal agent who was sent to investigate the murder for hire, for hire charge, which we see later in the, in the documentary series. Well, I don't want to harp on this too much, but is there one person or character that, that you just do not like at all? I'll start by saying that the two, the two that stand out to me are Doc Antle and this guy, Jeff Lowe, who we haven't talked a lot about, but both of those guys seem in sort of like the worst ways egotistical but but totally like morally bankrupt and i just found their portrayal particularly those those were two of the characters that i really never felt empathy towards um you know in terms of all the characters that we feature so those were the two that stand out to me as like the least appealing in terms of someone you can you could feel for peter did you have someone that you that stood out to you as as sort of like the least appealing. I'm I'm glad you said Jeff Lowe. I, I think it's worth pulling the thread here on Jeff Lowe for just, just 30 more seconds. So we talk about Joe Exotic is a bad guy who was doing a lot of things to enable all these people around him to keep his fortune going, to keep his husbands around, uh, that polygamous lifestyle and everything else he's doing with those employees and how badly he's treating them. Um, but you look at Jeff Lowe, a guy who came in who has multiple warrants out for his arrest in Las Vegas, ironically. He was running that as we were moving here, uh, we figured out here in May 2018. Um, so talk about a small world. But for me, what set me off the most watching Jeff Lowe is you remember the one of the first scenes with him. He's sitting there. His wife is sitting next to him. Joe Exotic has already introduced him, so we know that Jeff Lowe is going to be a problem. But Jeff Lowe is talking to his wife about how they're expecting his first child. And he says, but you're going to have to get in the gym immediately thereafter. And then he starts talking about all the nannies he's going to bring in and showing like glamour shots of these nannies and how attractive they are and just completely hinting at that he's got ulterior motives for these nannies coming in with his wife sitting right there and then you watch the way he's interacting with the employees and don't get me wrong joe exotic is not a good dude but you watch the way that he's conniving against joe exotic to get the zoo to get joe in jail everything joe's saying he's recording i'm i'm not saying joe exotic is innocent by any stretch but so much of his downfall can be directly attributed to the cancerous person that Jeff Lowe is who walked into that zoo, um, who was clearly being mentally abusive towards his wife. He's abusive towards the employees. He undermines Joe Exotic. I'm sure he egged him on with the whole Carol Baskin thing as well that I, I really and truly don't think Joe Exotic gets nearly the sentence he gets if Jeff Lowe doesn't egg him on for episodes five, six, and seven. Zach, did you have anybody that you, that you just did not like watching on screen? Yeah, well, I think you guys have hit the two main personalities who are completely detestable uh, through and through, and that's uh, Doc Antle and Jeff Lowe. Uh, in learning their stories and seeing them interact and communicate, it was clear to me and very disturbing to me how much there's a sexual undertone to this whole exotic animal thing, right? Uh, sex was clearly a very big part of Joe Exotic's life and Doc Antle has this, you know, harem of women who he's 
uh, basically entrapped there and paid to get you know plastic surgery to enhance their bodies. And uh, and then Jeff Lowe, as you mentioned, Pete, making all these comments about the nannies and is really detestable and and grotesque. Uh, one other person I'd add to that list, although in a different category and for different reasons, is uh, is Carol Baskin. And I don't really know how I feel about this because I mean we we, we should talk about the uh, you know kind of the central question of episode three, I think it was, or episode four. Um, she obviously has defended herself against the insinuation that she had anything to do with her husband's death. But the uh, the episode did not cast her in a very good light, and she comes across. I mean, again, I, I'm not a psychologist. I'm not a psychiatrist. She comes across though as someone who, uh, let's just say, lacks a well balanced life. And I mentioned that thing about the sexual undertones and the exotic zoo owners. I mean, there's even this this picture. It's pretty fleeting. It's probably up on the screen for you know five seconds or less. But when Carol uh, and her husband got married, uh, Howard, uh, she was dressed in like a tiger cat suit kind of thing and then he was in like a tiger suit on all fours like on a leash on the beach and it was just it was bizarre it was very very strange uh it's it's weird it's yeah it's very weird uh so basically i guess what i'm saying is i don't really like any of the zoo owners uh i think they're all i think they're all morally suspect people as we're talking about these bad characters i got the impression in episode three when they brought up carol baskin that the producers understood that they needed a hook to keep this thing going for seven episodes. And I thought part of the reason why we all disliked Carol Baskin so much is because it felt like the entire documentary, I thought, was trying to manufacture a hatred for her and find every reason. Um, And it almost felt like they were trying too hard, that there were enough bad characters, enough bad things going on, that you could have made an entire documentary almost without Carol Baskin. Obviously, the actions against her were kind of the climax of the series. But I thought that was really interesting in how it's made that you look at all these characters who we've talked about. I felt like the documentary was trying to show us that they were terrible people and egging these guys on from the start and almost manufactured that hatred um, in viewers towards them. It was it was really interesting looking back on this as I was thinking about this uh, today. I think that's a good point, Pete. And in fact, when you mentioned that, it makes me think as I reflect on the documentary, I think we heard more about Carol's possible involvement in the death of her husband. Then we did about Joe Exotic's possible involvement in the attempted murder of Carol Baskin. Absolutely. You know, so much so much so that I think a lot of viewers who finished that think, you know, Joe Exotic was wrongfully, uh, wrongfully convicted and imprisoned, and Carol Baskin, the real murderer, is out walking free. And one of the reasons I said I feel complicated about Carol Baskin is because I, I do think that there is some manipulation on the part of the viewer, right? I mean, how how does the how do the the filmmakers manufacture this drama, this th- these feelings within the hearts of the viewers? And I, I mean, I think the most probable is that Joe Exotic, uh, you know, a little bit mentally unstable, monomaniacal about Carol Baskin, hired somebody to kill her. Carol Baskin probably didn't murder her husband. Uh, just, I mean, based on the based on the lack of evidence, right? I mean, I guess there's circumstantial stuff, right? But there's nothing uh, solid that links her to that. But I think she's mentally unstable. I think she has some issues that a psychologist or psychiatrist should probably help her with. Um, but that's that's probably that that's that's my most likely scenario. That's not how you come away from the the series feeling. I don't think. Yeah, but Zach, how could there be any evidence when bones dissolve in a tiger's stomach? Okay, very, so very good point, Josh. It's science. <laughs> One thing I will say about those both both of those points, which they I think are well taken, is that yes, I do think that the the documentary series portrays certain characters in certain lights for the most dramatic effect possible. But it's not as if they're making things up. 
they are presenting what are true facts. Carol Baskin's husband, first husband disappeared. And there was some question, even among the authorities who initially investigated it, did she have anything to do with it? So yes, they might be portraying it in a certain way that they want the viewer to think that yes, she definitely murdered her husband, but it's not as if the whole situation is squeaky clean. So it's not as if like, her husband, her first husband is, oh, they found him. He was in Costa Rica or whatever after all. And there's no way he was even murdered. There was some fishy business, whether she was involved or not. So I think that perhaps, yes, they were able to manipulate how the viewer ultimately viewed her, but it's not as if they were starting from nothing and generating all of it from, from scratch. Okay. So I think that that sort of takes us into this next part of the discussion that I want to have, which I think is probably the more important discussion when it comes to Tiger King and documentaries like this, but it's sort of like the ethical and moral questions of observing something like this. And so the first thing I want to talk to you guys about and, and talk about is that the show explores a lot of like really sordid issues that most people watching would probably consider morally wrong or at the very least not socially acceptable. And so we've been talking a little bit about, you know, possible involvement in murder, uh, murder for hire, drug use, uh, you know, polygamy or, or cult like behavior. I mean, these are, these are very serious things. And, you know, the reaction that I mostly saw on social media with regards to Tiger King was that, oh my gosh, this was such a crazy thing. I can't believe what I just watched. I'm going to go back to my day-to-day life and not think much about it. So I guess the first thing I want to ask, and I'll, I'll throw this to you, Zach, is what do you think that this show tells us about human nature and really the ability for, you know, these behaviors to, to really thrive uh, for such a long period of time? Because these people have been operating in this way for for decades. Great question, Josh. I've been thinking about this uh, one since you sent it to us a little bit earlier today. I think there are a few things I would point to, and then I want to hear what what do you guys think. But the very first thing is you mentioned the cult like dynamics already, Josh. These these zoos. I'm thinking mostly of Doc Antle's zoo, uh, like Myrtle Beach Safari, I think it's called, and Joe Exotic Zoo are very cult-like. Doc Antle's probably a little bit more so, but there's a lot of cult-like behavior in, among Joe Exotic and his followers in this series. And I think one of the things that, that shows us is just the, um, you know, the promise of personalities and how willing some people are to follow those. And when I say some people, I don't mean that I'm not among those. I mean, you know, far be it for me to think that I could never be swayed by a persuasive person like this. But I think by some people, I mean, you know, not everyone is in a cult right now, right? So we see, we see a segment of the population taken in by this type of leader, this type of thinking. And uh, I think that's important to recognize. I mean, Netflix just came out with the Waco series as well. I've watched an episode of it. It wasn't, it wasn't super well acted, I didn't think. So I, I pressed pause on that and didn't, didn't watch more. But it explores, you know, a, a similar situation or at least an analogous situation uh, in which cult leaders have a really strong hold over other people. Uh, so why do they have a stronghold? I think that's the second thing that I'd want to explore here, and that's that uh, you know people are people are looking for belonging. That's why you know in the first episode of the Waco series, for example, uh, there's a musician who gets picked up by David Koresh, looking for belonging, and David Koresh invites him to the commune where he can live with the rest of the the commune members. Um, in the in the Tiger King place, I already talked about Joe Exotic's employees and how they were looking for belonging and congregated there in doc Antle's place it was you know he would basically lure young women in who had a, a desire for animals and then and then kept them there with 
uh, with money uh, and promises of spending more time with animals. So again, it's this desire for relationship with other people or with animals, you know, exotic tigers, whatever, uh, that draws people in. Uh, and then the danger is there are others who will capitalize on that desire for longing, that need, that very human, uh, you know, from the, from the depths of our beings that need to be with other people. I mean, Aristotle says man is a social animal because we're made for community. We're made for being with other people. Uh, how quickly, how powerfully that can get distorted when there are people with ill intent uh, who want to capitalize on it and then take advantage of other people in that way. I want to I want to posit this question to you guys. Do you think that people were drawn to this documentary series and and, and sort of stuck with it throughout the all seven episodes because they were watching it and thinking I feel better about myself because I'm not involved in in things that are as bad as this. So even if I'm not a great person for whatever reason, that I feel like I'm not nearly as bad as these people or the things that they're doing. Is that possible? Yeah, I'd say so. I'd say it's the same reason why people enjoy so much of the reality TV that seems so outlandish. I'm I'm not talking about Survivor or any of these things, which have... Uh, some kind of reason for for being on TV, but the the random shows that just show the infighting. I think of the classic Jersey Shore, The Real Housewives. I think people enjoy watching other people behave badly as an escape for a little while. Um, and like you said earlier, Josh, I think the timing was perfect of the quarantine. Um, that it it really picked up steam, and it was it was fun to be in on the memes about Carol Baskin, and it was it was fun to be in on the memes about Joe Exotic running for governor and for president, and all these things. That I I think we as people, as much as we try to deny it, enjoy seeing other people struggle and fail when it is separated from us and on TV. People don't like it in person, but I think on TV, it almost seems sanctioned to watch it and and watch these people struggle and and go through so much so much heartache. I, I think it makes us feel a little better. I think it's really interesting too. One of the things that I was thinking about when I was watching this is that there just seems to be, you know, like this idea that I, I didn't really consider that there are people in this world and in our country who, who go through things like this and, and not everything is, is like a, a, a murder or a murder for hire situation, but, th but there are a lot of people who are affected by drug use. And there are a lot of people who are affected by bad home situations and they, they flee to things like cults. And, and I think that one of the things that I appreciated about the documentary series that I was able to take away from it is that I, oftentimes I like to think that my worldview is, is broad and that I have a, you know, I have a good idea of what the rest of the world is, is going through. But things like Tiger King remind me that my worldview is relatively narrow. Like the, the environment in which I grew up in, I, you know, and, and sort of the environment in which I've placed myself now, it's a very narrow um, way of looking at the world, which I think is fine in some cases. Like I don't want to be involved in the things that they're showcasing in the documentary series, but I think it's good to be aware of the fact that there are people who deal with these type of thing and they are also fellow human beings and they are also, you know, worthy of our not not necessarily the attention, you know, giving attention for a bad reason, but they are worthy of, you know, human dignity. And I think that that's something that's that's easy to forget when you're sort of in your own little bubble. So I did appreciate that from the series that 
that there were people and there are people I'm thinking specifically of, of, uh, Travis and, and, um, the other husband, John, who sort of felt like trapped in this, in this world with Joe exotic, whether it was due to like drug dependency or whatever the case may be, ultimately it led to Travis's suicide, which is a tragic thing. And we don't know like what sort of mental health issues he might've been dealing with, but, you know, even looking at the character of John or the person of John, I guess he's, he's a real life person. Like he had a, you know, he is since, you know, separated himself from Joe exotic, but like this is a real person who was dealing with real problems. And, you know, I just think that it's interesting that a documentary series can help you explore the idea that there are other people who are dealing with things that you might not have considered. Does that ring true to you, Peter? Yeah, I'd say, I'd say absolutely. It was, I, I was blown away by the the drug use and the just the ongoing interpersonal struggles that these guys were dealing with. I mean, you go visit these places with your kids. Obviously, I haven't been to a big cat rescue, but you go to some of these uh, wildlife rescues that you find around the country. And uh, obviously, we know they're all people, but it was really interesting watching that and just seeing um, what those guys were dealing with on a day-to-day basis. You said it much better than I could, but we have a we have a lion rescue here in Las Vegas that I did a little research on after watching Tiger King, which it doesn't seem to have the problems that, that Joe Exotic or Doc Ansel's places had, um, but it's really interesting to think about. They're struggling for money, the things the owners are trying to do to generate revenue, the interpersonal fighting, the struggles the employees are going through to just feed themselves uh, while they're fighting with this. It was, it was really, really interesting to, to think about how that applies to what I've seen uh, in my life out here. Okay, so the next question I wanna talk about, and Zach, I'll throw this one to you. Do you think that we, and we don't have to spend a ton of time on this because I don't know if the answer is is entirely too complicated, but should we as viewers feel conflicted at all about watching these people and their negative actions? Like, is us watching sort of glorifying or in other way, in other way of putting it, is it endorsing what they're doing? Or do you think there's a way to sort of objectively watch this type of a thing and and come away with it, you know, it, it's sort of like a neutral ground? You know, that's a good question. And I'm reminded of a podcast I listened to. Actually, Pete, this was around the time we met now, I guess, three years ago. But I was listening to this podcast called S-Town. I don't know if you guys have listened to that. Yeah, Uh, I remember that. Okay. (laughs) Yeah. So S-Town is about this guy named John. He lives in uh, the middle of nowhere, Alabama. And he's visited by this NPR reporter who puts together this fantastic documentary style podcast all about John and who he is and just what a remarkable person he is and, and all of this. But it, it, the podcast itself is a little invasive. And I remember there were some conversations online, you know, discussions about the ethics of this podcast, because you find that at the end, not too unlike Joe Exotic, John is, is mentally challenged in, 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 a, in a few ways, I think. You know, he, he has some mental struggles. And, uh, and some of them, I think, you know, bear resemblance to the things that Joe Exotic uh, deals with, including sort of some monomania issues and things like that. And yet the, the journalist documents all of this and then puts it all out there for the world to see. And it's not clear, you know, again, not being a psychologist or psychiatrist, it's not clear, you know, to what degree uh, John, or in this case, Joe Exotic, could like, you know, truly or freely consent to the, the documentary evidence that's being put out there, right? So that opens up a whole can of worms. I don't pretend to have a good, ex- good answer to any of that, but I think it's a good question worth asking, Josh. Should we feel conflicted? I think... Uh, I guess the first thing I would say, the first thing that comes to mind on, on reflection here is that what matters is why we're watching it. And that's, I think, real, one reason why it's very important as a viewer or listener in the case of podcasts 
to be self-aware about why you're doing what you're doing. And I think it requires some self-discipline. But if you're watching Tiger King just because you like watching the train wreck, you know, because it's a train wreck and you can't look away, uh, as we discussed previously, right? Is this just so, does it help us feel better about our own lives that are better by comparison, et cetera? I think that's not a good reason to watch this. If, on the other hand, you're watching Tiger King because you want to understand, you know, truly, uh, you know, dynamics of human nature and why we do the things we do, then I think that's a different thing altogether. And I think that it's possible to have a documentary be able to appeal to both sides of that, right? And so as you're watching it, you have to be on guard against those appetitive desires that want you to just watch the train wreck and instead be, be teasing this out for what it can offer. And I'm reminded on this, uh, Josh, of our podcast, Breaking Pod, because Breaking Bad is, is kind of like this. It's obviously not a, doc, not a documentary. It's a fictional dramatization. But I think you still deal with the same questions, right? Like when you're watching that show, are you watching it just because you want to watch a tense drama about narco politics and narco terrorism? Or are you watching that because that show has something deep to say about human nature? It appeals to you or can appeal to you on both fronts. And I think it's, it's incumbent on the viewer to, to shape their own response and, and to be aware of their own response. And for some people, it, it, and this is okay, it might be too much to uh, watch something like Tiger King and not just take the car, the, the car crash or train wreck approach. And if that's the case, uh, you know, turn it off. There, there are, I think there are better ways to spend your time and there are more edifying things for you to do. Um, but, but I don't think that disqualifies uh, you know, the virtue of watching something like Tiger King again yeah, with the right intention in mind. Yeah, I guess you you do sort of have to to determine whether or not the documentary or whatever you're watching is mainly sensationalist, or if it has a deeper, or if it could have a deeper impact on you as a human and how you interact with other people. Peter, do you have anything to add to that? Yeah, I I was thinking about this a lot after you uh, you brought the question up to us earlier as well. And the more I thought about it, and I was actually clicking through Netflix uh, about two hours ago just to kind of see what was available, um, and I think I'm, I'm starting to come to the realization that my animosity towards some of these shows is not necessarily in just watching the train wreck, which I, I think many of us are guilty of, unfortunately, um, but it's, it's the quality of programming that we're finding on these streaming services and on TV in general right now that I think is enabling these kind of actions. I know neither of you guys were dumb enough to watch the bonus episode uh, to its conclusion like I was, but each one of these co-workers from the zoo, every single person they followed up with was on celebrity status, and they were clearly enjoying the attention. Some seemed a little embarrassed, but at the same time, they were enjoying the attention. And I'm not saying that that is going to make them act in a certain way for the rest of their lives, but I think these these types of reality television shows, the way that they build up these antics and how things are clearly being done because they're on camera and because it keeps pushing the envelope and pushing the envelope and, and enabling all of these things, I'm starting to, to have issue with the, the things Netflix is putting on TV. I mean, you look at these sensational reality shows that they've aired even since COVID-19 started with the Love is Blind show and the Too Hot to Handle show and all of these things where they're just trying to get a reaction out of people uh, that I think it, it has to make you wonder what is the future of television programming and, and what are we looking at going forward? And I think as I was just clicking through Netflix earlier, fortunately on my profile, we set up a different profile for my kids just to make sure that when we pull up TV for them, it doesn't auto start one of these terrible programs. But yeah, that's a great thing to do. A lot Sally of and I were just talking there. about, yes, we were just talking about the other day and uh, not great, not great. The, the auto start on Netflix is 
terrible. Set up a profile for your kids. They have a 12 and under setting, but just the filth on all of these streaming services now. I mean, Netflix, I mean, it's never been wholesome, but it's it never seemed to be oriented towards the sensationalism that it is now. And you watch some of these documentaries are clearly just being generated for sensationalism. So not exactly answering your question, Josh, but it was it was kind of a stark realization for me a couple hours ago as I was thinking about Tiger King and thinking about what we would talk about tonight that maybe I'm, I'm just not enjoying, maybe I'm just missing sports, who knows, but maybe I, I'm just not enjoying what's available anymore for streaming. Okay, so the last thing I want to talk about, and, and this is something that I found I find most interesting anytime I watch a documentary series. When I was in college, I took a documentary filmmaking class, and it, it wasn't a production class. It was exploring the history of documentary film. And one of our assignments was to watch a documentary and sort of write a paper on sort of the the development of that documentary. The one that I chose was a documentary called No Impact Man, which is a fascinating documentary about this guy named Colin Beaven. He's a New York City resident. He has a wife and a child. And he decided that for an entire year, he was going to live in New York City and try to have close to zero impact on the environment. That meant composting. That meant you know not using electricity. That meant doing everything they possibly could to have no impact on the environment. And I thought the documentary itself was very well produced. It was fascinating, it was interesting. It was an interesting look at how we treat the world that we live in. But one of the things that I talked about in my paper was that while he was doing this, he had an entire documentary crew with cameras and lights and sound equipment and clearly people who were having an impact on the environment because they were producing this documentary, they were sort of following him around for an entire year. So while he succeeded with his family in having little impact on the environment personally, the filmmakers were maybe creating more of an impact on the environment because of what they were doing in producing this this movie. And so I'm always been I've always been fascinated by this idea of the ethical responsibility of the filmmaker to sort of step in and and sort of make a statement about what they are producing. So in the case of Tiger King, do the filmmakers, Eric Good and Rebecca Chaikin, I think were the two filmmakers who created this show, or Rebecca Chaiklin, did they have or do they have a responsibility to sort of step in with regards to some of the legally questionable actions taken by the participants in the show? Or is the role of a documentary filmmaker just generally, is it up to them to just sort of document as their title suggests and present it to the world as best as they can to provide a sort of well-rounded picture? Peter, do you have any thoughts on this? Yeah, I I actually think you and Maureen touched on this a couple weeks ago when you guys talked about Free Solo, which is one of my favorite things I've seen recently and about how the documentary crew was struggling to come to grips with the fact that if something terrible happened while he was while he was soloing, that they would have to be part of that. And they would have to live with that. And I ask documentary filmmakers not necessarily to change what's happening, even though a lot of times they change it just by being there. Um, but I ask them to acknowledge that um, and have a conversation about how they're impacting the, the world around them. And I think that's what frustrated me about Tiger King is everything was played up so much for those cameras. And we look back on when Joe Exotic's husband committed suicide. 
I don't know why taping continued after that. And clearly it wasn't done for the camera, but that was something that shook that entire community so much to the core. Um, and you see Joe still trying to play it up for his Thanksgiving dinner after that. I, I, I ask a documentary crew to be self-aware enough to know when it's time to, to call it quits, when a situation has gotten out of control and when they need to walk away. And, and I think they seem to play it up even more. I mean, you watch Joe doing his stand-up routine at his late husband's funeral right there. Maybe a lot of that was Joe trying to cope, but a little of that was Joe trying to be an entertainer for the cameras right there at that funeral. And it just, it's kind of disgusting when you think about how much the the fact that that film crew was there affected the lives of all those people. Zach, do you have any thoughts on ethical responsibility of a filmmaker? I have a few. I tend to give a fairly large amount of leeway to someone who is documenting something, right? Any journalist who's working in the written word or videographer who's doing a video piece. I've been, uh, I've really enjoyed some work by Vice News, uh, whose journalists have gone to major conflict zones and gotten footage that I can barely imagine getting, right? I mean, we're talking about you know, bombs dropping in Syria or traveling to North Korea and documenting kind of the inner machinations of some of the things in the regime there. Uh, and I tend to give them a pretty wide berth to work in their documenting because they serve a very valuable function, right? And the role of a journalist, you know, just, just like the, the role of a doctor is summed up in the Hippocratic Oath. I mean, the role of a journalist, I think, is to document and to educate people who, who can't be there to witness it for themselves. Um, and so I personally have benefited from the work of, of documentarians who have gone to crazy places and into crazy situations to document. But also, I think, Pete, you bring up a good point, right? I mean, when is enough enough? And uh, I think if I were a journalist, if I were a documentarian, my red line, you know, to use that, that phrase would be kind of, you know, if, if there's risk of loss of, you know, life or limb, right? If someone's in grave danger uh, from losing something, I would feel uncomfortable just documenting that, uh, you know, be, like their, their life or even their arm, right? I mean, uh, documenting someone who is doing risky things and sticking their arm through a cage and dangling a piece of meat for a tiger to bite, I don't think I'd be comfortable just filming that, right? I would probably say, don't do that. You're going to lose an arm, right? Um, you know, I don't know. I mean, I think, Pete, you bring up a good point about the suicide. I don't know if um, the, the suicide in my mind warrants stopping filming. I think there's some other kind of complicated issues going on in the life of that person, et cetera. Um, but I do think it's, it's certainly a worthwhile consideration. I don't think I have enough info about what those documentarians had on the ground and knew on the ground to know, you know, to, to be able to sort of pronounce judgment or a decision in this case. Uh, but those are my general thoughts on the role of a journalist and the ethical obligations of them. Yeah, there was a there was a documentary that was released a couple of years ago, and it was nominated for an Academy Award for Best Documentary Feature. And I can't remember the name off the top of my head, but the the documentary is about was about this this documentarian who sort of embedded himself with a family in a Middle East country where the father was raising his child to be a terrorist, essentially. And, you know, the putting aside sort of like the the difficulty of capturing that because of, you know, this person could was risking their life to to bring this story. I just wonder, like, at, at what point, you know, the documentary, the documentarian has to say, like, why am I highlighting this? Or is there something that I could possibly do? I, I just looked up the title. It's called of fathers and sons. And I just, I just sort of wonder, I guess it's, it's, it should be looked at on a case by case basis. But, you know, I think that I do appreciate the work that the journalists do to bring us stories and, and information about 
you know, different places around the world and different situations that people are in. But I, I always think about sort of like the ethical nature of sort of reporting on something or documenting something when, you know, you're talking about potential loss of human life or, you know, very morally gray or morally wrong issues, you know, when you look at sort of the way people behave. So I just found that interesting. And, and I don't, you know, like the idea that Tiger King deals with a potential murder or murder for hire. I mean, these are very ethically and morally wrong things that people are doing and sort of like the idea that the documentary is highlighting them. I, I always wonder, do the, do the filmmakers have a responsibility to sort of step in if they uncover something? And there was that famous case of the HBO documentary, the jinx where the, the documentary about Robert Durst and sort of how he confessed with his microphone on and you know, there was this whole idea, like when the documentary came out, they said, you filmed this months ago. Like, how could you, did you tell the authorities at the time? Like he confessed to these murders and they were like, well, we, we worked with them, but really they were saving it so that when it aired on HBO, that it would get this big reaction. Like, Shock oh my gosh. Value. Right. And so, you know, there's sort of, I think there's a, a gray area there that, that should really be looked at when you, when you talk about, you know, documenting something or you, and I think it goes back to your point, Zach, why it's not just the viewer who has to look at why they're watching something. It has to be the documentarian or the reporter. Why are they reporting on this? Why are they documenting this? Is there, yeah, is that's it a for, very good point too. Like, is what, it for sensationalism or yeah. Or is it for, you know, a true understanding of human nature and human life? Yeah. Great points. Totally agree. Okay. So the last thing I, I think I would say before we each give a teaser here is, which it will, will not be related to Tiger King is uh, just quickly, Peter, would you recommend this to someone? Yes, just because it's such an interesting conversation on the human experience with the understanding that you're going to hate just about everyone in the show by the time it's over. It's it's still a very interesting watch. Zach, how about you? I actually think I disagree with Pete. Uh, if you had asked me like two days after I watched the show, I think I would have said yes for the same reason that Pete just did. But the more that I've thought about it, the more it sat with me, the more I'm just thinking like, I don't know what Tiger King added to my life, honestly. I just feel like I, you know, sort of invaded the privacy of these people through six or seven, whatever it was, seven episodes. Uh, these people who have like real problems who probably should be seeking professional help, I mean, at least half of them, um, or who have just been, you know, down on their luck for the vast majority of their lives and have really been longing for, you know, belonging and community and stuff. And so, you know, I feel like I sort of intruded on that. Obviously, I'm not alone in that. Lots of Americans uh, did the same thing. I guess this was probably released globally on Netflix, right? So people around the world probably did the same thing. But, um, but yeah, I, I think I would say no. I, I think there are, generally speaking, there are better ways to spend one's time. Now, I mean, the caveat, right? Like if someone is working on, you know, uh, you know, dangerous to exotic animals being caged up and things like that. I mean, specific projects where this could maybe shed some light on like that industry and things that are going on, then sure. I mean, watch it. I think that's a totally different scenario. But in general, I think I would say uh, I would not watch it. And I will give credit here to my wife who watched the first episode with me and then was like, nope, <laughs> I'm done. So she, she was the uh, she was the wise one. That's more than my wife gave me, which was the trailer and nope from her. Well, we, Our we wives very are wise smarter than that. Yeah, yeah, exactly. <laughs> I will say the one thing you will you will have missed out on if you don't watch it is Joe Exotic's music career, which is fascinating so in and of itself. It's more of a um, it's more of a dubbing career, I think. Right. <laughs> yeah, he's a he's a pretty good lip syncer. Whoever's singing, not a bad voice, but it's not Joe Exotic. All right. So let's wrap up our, our episode today. We're going to each give a teaser 
And uh, Zach and, and Peter don't usually get to give teasers, so I will throw it to Peter first. Do you have a teaser to give to our audience? Yeah, initially, based on how much American history I'm doing, I was going to recommend Schoolhouse Rock because, you know, I watched Shot Heard Around the World this morning and it holds up, my friends. But um, in sticking with the theme, but maybe a little more adult content focused, um, I have been really into storytelling podcasts recently, and there's a lot of rabbit holes. You can go down with storytelling podcasts, but the one that I have really been hooked on recently is History That Doesn't Suck. Um, and it is uh, Professor Greg Jackson, who's out in Utah. He's a, he's a PhD. Uh, he's got two of his uh, crack research assistants working on it with him. And he just tells the story of America one hour at a time every two weeks, starting uh, with the Seven Years' War. Some know it as the French and Indian War, but talking about George Washington, how he got his start. And it is just a great story. If you're going on long walks here during quarantine like I am, it is just great to escape and You'll learn something every time. He's a fantastic storyteller, well-researched. Can't recommend that enough. History that doesn't suck. All right, Zach, do you have a teaser for our audience? I sure do. So, uh, you know, I'm a big Aaron Sorkin fan, and one of his films is called Molly's Game. It's not a new film, but it's newly released on Netflix. So if you haven't seen it uh, yet and you have a Netflix Netflix subscription, you can do that for free now. Uh, It's really good. Jessica Chastain stars. She's a former Olympian uh, who starts to run high-stakes poker games. Uh, based on a true story, maybe maybe it's more of those like you know inspired by true events type of thing. I'm not so totally sure how uh, how well the screenplay adheres to reality, but at least inspired by true events. Uh, Idris Elba's in it, Kevin Costner, a real uh, star-studded lineup, uh, and Aaron Sorkin at maybe not his finest, but but it's a good one nonetheless. So Molly's Game on Netflix. It was his directorial debut, so he not only wrote it but he also directed it. Zach, where does it rank for you in in terms of Sorkin movies? What's your favorite Sorkin movie? The Social Network. Yeah, that's, yeah, that's a good, good one. one. And I also, love the newsroom, that HBO show. Yeah. And The Social Network, a favorite of the, the Ringer podcast. The, that's the Ringer true. Network. Yeah. They love The Social Network. Yeah, that was like their all-decade film. Yeah, it was. It yeah. was. Also, I, I'm a big fan of A Few Good Men, too, which he wrote uh, way back in the, in the yeah, early 90s. Good. All right, my teaser this week is something that hasn't happened yet, but I want to uh, alert our podcast audience to it. So in order to raise money for charity, the cast of Parks and Rec, one of my favorite NBC shows, has come together and they are going to release a new episode entirely filmed over Zoom or online somehow. But uh, they got all of the uh, main cast back together for an episode that is going to premiere on Thursday April 30th on NBC at 8.30. So I'm very excited for that. I don't know if it'll be any good, but it'll be fun to see Amy Poehler as Leslie Nope again, one of my uh, favorite characters, and and the whole cast back together for another episode. So if you're a Parks and Rec fan, know that that is coming up, 8.30 p.m. on Thursday, April 30th on NBC. And we'll see how that goes. All right, guys. Thank you guys so much for joining me for this special episode. And we look forward to bringing you a new episode back with Maureen next week. We'll talk to you then. You can leave us feedback, comments, or questions on each episode by going to vernacularpodcast.com slash poppedcast. We would love to hear from you. You can also reach us by emailing thepoppedcast at vernacularpodcast.com. Please also subscribe, rate, and review our show on your podcast app of choice so you don't miss an episode. We'll be back next week, as always, sitting in our basement with a brand new episode. Talk to you then. Bye, everybody. Bye. I will also ask you guys, have you put on the COVID-19 yet? (laughs) 
I think the, the chocolate is moving me towards that. I think I've had the COVID-19 since I was a freshman in college. Oh, okay. <laughs> yeah, I will, I will say, yeah, the, the amount of cereal that I'm consuming is is pretty ridiculous. I think I finished an entire family size box of Cinnamon Toast Crunch on my own in about four or five days. Oh, that's it, awesome. It's the milk that gets you with the cereal. It's the milk. Yeah. yeah. I, I will say my, tr- my trick with cereal is that I'll pour... I'll pour cereal, then I'll pour the milk, but I'll always pour a little extra milk. And then I say, well, I've got to add a little bit more cereal to that. So I add a little bit more cereal and then I add a little bit more milk and the cycle just perpetuates over and over. 